Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. Once again, if I sound different from this episode than normal episodes, it's because I'm in our studio in Atlanta, not at home. But we are continuing our story about space stations, which just gets longer with every episode. I I thought originally this was going to be maybe a two-parter. Turns out it's going to be a four-parter. And this is part three. So in our last episode in this series, we looked at the history of Mir, the first modular space station. And there are a couple of things that I really need to cover before I move on. Stuff I didn't talk about in the Mir episode for one reason or another. Uh, One of those is that Mir really was an amazing achievement, but it was also kind of a horror show, at least according to some reports. Astronauts who visited Mir mentioned that parts of the space station were littered with rubbish because the Russians hadn't really come up with a way to store that stuff effectively. I mentioned how the Quant 1 module sort of became a, a, a container for floating rubbish after the various instruments in that, in that uh, module went kaput and there was no real need to use it anymore. But that's not to say that garbage just continued to accumulate over the 15-year span that Mir was in service. Uh, the crew would actually unpack incoming cargo ships that would dock with Mir. Then they would shove garbage into the cargo ships that went back to re-enter Earth's atmosphere and then break apart on re-entry. So... That garbage was sent hurtling back to Earth, but you know it's okay because most of it just burnt up on the way back. At least, I guess it's okay. And in the last episode, I mentioned that a cargo ship once collided with the Spectre module on Mir. Uh, as the, the cargo ship was going through this experimental docking procedure with the Quant-1 module nearby. That collision punctured Spectre's hull, forcing the crew to seal the Spectre module off from the rest of the station in order to prevent the full station from depressurizing. The Spectre module's power generation capabilities were similarly cut off. It had some solar arrays, but, you know, sealing it off meant that the astronauts, the cosmonauts, I should say, had no more access to it. However, uh, there were some uh, some EVAs, some spacewalks that the cosmonauts conducted in order to restore at least some connectivity with Spectre's power generation, though the module itself remained sealed off. Spectre had been where American astronauts had lived up to that point. Obviously, it could no longer serve that function. It had been in service for just two years when this collision brought it offline. There was speculation that the whole reason that this happened may have been that that cargo ship that collided with Spectre had actually been overpacked with garbage ahead of that experimental docking procedure. And that the problem was that because of all that extra garbage, the ship had more mass than the uh, control crew thought it was going to have. So they weren't able to bring it to a stop the way they thought they would. Because uh, it's remember that it's, you know, it's pretty hard to judge how much to pack into a ship because it's really hard to figure out how much stuff weighs in microgravity because you can't, you know, put it on a scale or anything. So you you could easily pack too much mass in a cargo ship and not realize it when you're in microgravity because there's no easy way to keep track of that with precision. And as we know, you know, the more massive something is, the harder it is to change that object's momentum. A heavy object 
needs more energy to get it to start moving than a lighter object needs. And a heavier object also needs more energy to bring it to a stop than a lighter object would. So that might have been why the cargo ship failed to use enough thrust to avoid the collision during that docking procedure, that the ship itself was just loaded down with garbage. Jean-Pierre Agnier, and I know I've butchered his name, so I'll just call him Jean-Pierre from now on, a French astronaut and pilot, spoke with new scientists about what it was like to live and work aboard Mir. He said that the station smelled kind of like burnt coffee and that the fans on board the ship, the fans that, you know, were circulating the air aboard the ship, generated 67 decibels worth of noise on average, making it sound like a noisy engine room all the time. He said it was actually hard for him to get used to silence when he left the station. He said there was no privacy aboard the station, that the crew were required to engage in two exercise sessions a day to counteract the effects that microgravity can have on the human body, and that on average they would get two sessions of five-minute daily contacts with Earth, and otherwise they were just stuck with each other. Jean-Pierre said that he felt Mir was error-resistant, that the station itself was resistant to serious errors, and pointed out that while the station had experienced two separate emergencies, like real emergencies, one was the onboard fire and the other was the cargo ship collision, no one was harmed in either of those. And so while these accidents happened, the ship or the, the space station itself was resistant to catastrophe. He did criticize the procedures that were followed by the Russian space agency. He said they weren't really sufficiently careful or detail-oriented and that things could have been much worse had the tech not been as, uh, you know, tough. Also, toward the end of Mir's service, the crew aboard the station conducted a study on the microbes that were inhabiting the station. The climate control system had been leaking slightly, and the crew found that behind an inspection panel, they found orbs of water floating back there. Murky water. Each orb was about the size of a soccer ball. So these are pretty sizable you know, groups of water, and the microbes inside included fungi, mites, and bacteria. And along with that, the crew found that there were microbes that were feeding off the rubberized seals around the windows. Now, when you happen to be in a pressurized station in outer space, that's a serious risk. And it's not just like these microbes hitched a ride aboard all the equipment. The station had come together in clean rooms on Earth. So clean rooms are facilities that use powerful air filtration systems to remove particulates and contaminants from, you know, the atmosphere and not have them interfere when you're building the stuff. So all the grody stuff didn't come from the equipment. It came up courtesy of the cosmonauts and astronauts who visited the Mir space station. You know, because people are gross. All people are gross. You are gross. I'm gross. Tari is gross. Grossness aside, Mir served many purposes. There were a lot of scientific studies and experiments on Mir, including mostly the effects of uh, what it's like for human beings to be in space for extended stays. That was really important. It also served as a test bed for international cooperation with regard to space science and exploration. You know, a lot of visiting cosmonauts were from different countries who got to stay aboard Mir. And this was an important stepping stone. And now for one last Mir story, but it's a heck of a story. So let's talk a bit more 
about cosmonaut Sergei Krikalev. I mentioned him in the previous episode, but uh, this is a, a big part of his story. He had joined the Soviet space program in the 1980s. He was selected to be a cosmonaut in 1985, and he completed his training the following year. And he was assigned originally to the Buran program. Uh, that was the Soviet equivalent of the space station. Ultimately, the Buran never flew beyond an unmanned test flight. But later, he was selected to fly to Mir, which he actually did a couple of times. The first time he did it was in 1988. He was up there for 152 days. But it was during his second visit that I really want to you know, cover here. He returned to Mir on a mission in May of 1991 with Anatoly uh, Art Zabarsky, and Britain's first astronaut, Helen Sharman. Now, the way Mir missions worked is that you would have crews come up and intermingle with crews from previous missions. So there would be, you know, some, some carryover. And some of the folks who were previously aboard Mir would then board the Soyuz capsule that had just docked with the station, and then they would leave. They would go back to Earth, and others would stay aboard. And you couldn't just leave Mir unattended, so there was always, you know, a crew aboard there. Soyuz capsules had very limited capacity, so there wasn't any real way to get everyone back unless you were to abandon ship and take the one escape capsule that was docked with the station and take that back to Earth, but that would leave Mir unattended. So, Krikalev found himself in a tricky situation because he was up on Mir when the Soviet Union ceased to be. The space program responsible for taking cosmonauts to and retrieving them from the space station no longer existed, and there wasn't space in the capsules that were scheduled to go up and come back for Krikalev to go along with it. So he was left in limbo on the space station, not knowing when or even if he would ever be able to come back to Earth. And he got the nickname, The Last Soviet Citizen, because when he went up, the Soviet Union was still a thing. He was a flight engineer. He was stuck keeping Mir in working order. And he did ask that one crew that was going to visit him, but they weren't going to be able to take him back because, again, the Soyuz capsule didn't have the capacity for it. He asked them if they could maybe bring him some honey, which could help lift his spirits. They weren't able to get hold of any honey. So instead, they brought him lemons and horseradish, which I think is insult to injury, personally. Now, fortunately, rescue did come. And after more than 330 days in space, which was twice the length of his planned stay, he was able to return to Earth. His landing spot was originally part of the USSR, and his spacesuit even still had USSR stitched on it. But now that same landing spot was part of Kazakhstan. Uh, in fact, his hometown had changed names. When he went up, it was called Leningrad. When he came back down, it had a new name, St. Petersburg. And because of uh, massive inflation issues with Russian currency, his salary for being a cosmonaut was now about half of what a bus driver would have made. Yowza. He would later serve as the guest cosmonaut on the space shuttle program that was part of the shuttle Mir missions. Uh, I mentioned that in the last episode. And he wasn't even done with space after that. Like, even after all that, he was still going to go up into space again because he was the first Russian cosmonaut to be a crew member aboard the International Space Station, which we're going to talk about more in the next episode. But his is a really cool story. 
Okay, so let's switch over and briefly talk about the space shuttle program in the United States because that program would in turn shape the development of future space stations and have massive effects on the progress of space station development as well. After the Apollo missions, uh, with the exception of the Apollo-Soyuz mission in which an Apollo capsule and a Soyuz capsule docked in orbit in 1975, well, NASA was looking at what the future of spaceflight would be all about. There was this desire to develop a spacecraft that could go up into orbit, return to Earth in a way that would allow pilots to guide the spacecraft to a landing strip, then land safely, and then be, you know, repaired and prepared for a subsequent launch so you could reuse it. A reusable spacecraft would cut way back on expenses because NASA wouldn't have to commission a brand new spacecraft for every single mission, Uh, although the launch system was a different story. But anyway... This program got started in 1972, but developing a new spacecraft takes a lot of time. You have to design things, you have to propose things, you have to settle on which proposal is best, you have to, you know, award contracts. It's a whole thing. And as we're covering in this series, NASA regularly changes as well due to lots of different reasons from Congress, you know, shifting budgets year over year to changes in presidential administrations that affect the leadership at NASA. So the hope was to have the shuttle program up and running in time to dock with Skylab and boost the orbiting laboratory to a higher orbit and extend its useful lifespan. But the space shuttle program delays meant that that just wasn't going to happen. That's why NASA had no choice but to allow Skylab's orbit to decay to the point where it re-entered Earth's atmosphere and then broke apart into pieces, some of which hit Australia. By 1977, NASA was testing a glider called Enterprise to verify that the basic designs for the space plane would work. But it wouldn't be until 1981 that the agency would have a space shuttle capable of going into orbit and returning. And that space shuttle was Columbia, and it launched for the first time in April of 1981. Skylab, by the way, had already come crashing down in 1979. Now, the reason I even bring up the space shuttle is that this would become the primary means of bringing astronauts up to the space station and back down again. The Russians would continue to rely on the Soyuz capsule to take cosmonauts up to Mir, but the space shuttle would be the main vehicle used to, you know, shuttle crews and experiments to and from space stations. And that meant that the design of the shuttle itself would inform the design of future space stations. You want your station to be compatible with your method of transportation. Makes sense. Anyway, in 1979, plans had begun in NASA for a new space station. Like Mir, this one was planned to be modular, with pieces brought up on separate space shuttle missions and then constructed in orbit. And as a stepping stone toward that, NASA formed a strategic partnership with the European Space Agency. One of the early examples of this in the space shuttle era were these things called space labs. The ESA, the European Space Agency, created these laboratories, which would be loaded into the payload cargo bay of the space shuttle, and they would serve as lab space for specific experiments. There were lots of different space lab missions. In fact, there were more than 20 of them throughout the space shuttle program. Now, the space labs were not space stations themselves. They remained connected to the shuttle. But their development would lead to advancements in the ESA, and they would serve as the foundation for space station modules down the line in the future. 
There were also plans to have the space shuttle visit Salyut stations in partnership with the then Soviet Union. Uh, This gets into politics a bit. So beginning in the late 60s, the USSR and USA started to work toward more cooperation in everything from space exploration to pumping the brakes on the arms race around the world. It wasn't always a super happy, fun friendship, but it wasn't as adversarial a relationship as the two had experienced in the 1950s and early 60s. This period, called the détente, lasted from 1969 to 1979, but it ended right around the time the space shuttle program was making real progress. We'll pick up with more about how the political situation affected the space exploration industry after we take this quick break. The reasons for the breakdown and dissolution of the detente are pretty complicated and obviously well beyond the parameters of this show. But things were already tense before the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in 1979. What followed would be increased tension between the two nations with a resurgence in arms development and uh, deployment to follow. So, yeah. That was my childhood. That was a childhood in which there was this omnipresent, vague threat of nuclear annihilation. Simpler times, man. Now, what this means for our podcast is just that any plans to have the space shuttle be part of the Salyut program were put on ice. And by then, the USSR was focusing on Mir as well. Things would change later, after Gorbachev worked to reestablish a more friendly relationship with Europe and the United States. So... In 1982, NASA formed a special group, the Space Station Task Force. This group started to put together a plan for a space station. Further, the plan was to involve the international community, opening up the whole process from development to construction to operation to other nations. In 1983, NASA hosted a workshop focusing on space stations. The following year, 1984, U.S. President Ronald Reagan specifically called for the development of a space station during his State of the Union address. NASA subsequently created the Space Station Program Office to go from the kind of brainstorming phase and the buy-in phase to a more formal planning phase. NASA also issued an RFP, that's a request for proposal, and this RFP went out to various companies in the aerospace industry to submit proposals as to the design of space station components, like modules and such. The plan for what the space station would look like, and thus how designers would arrange all the components, changed a few times. One of the early designs got the nickname the Power Tower, which makes me think of like a pro wrestling team. But the Power Tower space station design was a pretty darn long one. The main structure would have measured 122 meters once fully assembled. That's around 400 feet. That is a long space station. Now, not all of that length was habitable. It wasn't all like modules where astronauts could, you know, float around. The design actually included a truss or scaffolding from which components like radio telescopes and solar arrays could hang. In fact, extending out to either side from the center mass of this power tower would be 41 meters worth of solar arrays on either side. That's about 134 and a half feet of solar arrays sticking out to either side of this thing. 
The structure would have articulated attachment points for various payloads, allowing NASA and the ESA and other partners to create scientific experiments that could do all sorts of different kinds of research, from Earth studies to astronomical observations. It would be a massive undertaking, or I should say it would have been a massive undertaking. Assembly would have required 12 separate shuttle flights, uh, as estimated by NASA, in order to get all the components into orbit and then connected to one another. NASA's projected schedule for doing that would span 1992 to 1995. Now, keep in mind, this is a plan that's being proposed in 1984, and parts of the station according to this plan, would be ready for astronauts to actually inhabit it by 1993. So while the station would not be complete till 95, starting in 93, there would be enough there for astronauts to go there and work and live aboard the space station. However, there were some external issues that would mean that this would, you know, be the space station that never was. And the reason for that was primarily related to budget. Even going into 1985, a decade before the station would have been completed if things had gone as planned, reductions in NASA's budget meant there just was no viable way for the agency to stay on target with a plan to go this direction. But in addition to budgets, there were criticisms about the design. Oliver Harwood, who had been a space station engineer, said that he felt the various contractors had all submitted pretty similar designs for the station and that these designs showed that the contractors weren't actually looking to find the best way to solve engineering problems. Instead, they were trying to make sure that their design looked a lot like NASA's original proposed design, just in an effort to win a contract. So in other words, he's, he was saying that these companies were, were saying this is not necessarily the best way, but it might be the best way to get paid. And that's not necessarily great if you're looking to build something that's supposed to support people in space and, you know, be a platform on which you do a lot of science. Another criticism was that the sections of the inhabited power tower depended upon a construction approach in which modules were stacked one on top of another in a linear fashion. But some engineers worried that this could lead to dangerous situations. So imagine you've got a space station made out of you know, like seven modules, and they're all arranged in a line, end to end. So you have module one on one end, you got module seven on the opposite end, and, you know, two through six are in between. Now let's say there's a point where maybe module modules four and six catch on fire, and someone happens to be in module five. So you, you seal off modules four and six so that the fire doesn't spread, but now you've got an astronaut stuck in module five. They have no way of getting out because one end of the station, seven, is on the other side of the sealed off five, and uh, or six rather, and the other end of the station is on the other side of sealed off module four. So you'd have this dead end situation. It could be catastrophic. At any rate, by the time we were actually into 1985, the power tower design was abandoned, and in the fall of 85, NASA studied a different design called a dual-keel station. That's keel is K-E-E-L. It's a, you know, a boat term. The design had a massive truss, sort of like a, a long rectangle of scaffolding, and a length of scaffold going across the middle, halfway down the length of the rectangle. 
NASA planned to mount modules on this truss connected to one another and also have solar arrays attached to either side, uh, extending outward from the edges of this rectangle, and modules are mounted along the interior. It's kind of hard to describe, so if you want to get an image of this, you can search dual keel spaceship, and there are a lot of illustrations and models of it. And it's kind of a moot point because NASA would later abandon this design too, but the idea was that the design would provide stability in microgravity uh, for the entire station, that it would keep things stable so you didn't have to worry about too much mechanical stress being placed on any point of the space station, which could then lead to failure. The size and complexity of the design also meant that NASA increased the crew complement to eight astronauts. The earlier designs had focused on a crew of six, but there was this concern that six astronauts wouldn't be enough to both get the station up and running and keep it running while also doing experiments. Like the station would be so complicated that astronauts would be spending all of their time assembling things and powering them on and maintaining them and never getting around to science. NASA estimated that it could get all the parts of this space station up into orbit in 11 shuttle missions. So even one fewer than the power tower version. And that uh, the added cost of the change in in the design would be, quote-unquote, just $400 million. And uh, I say that because the Power Tower space station cost an estimated around $8.1 billion when it was all said and done. Like, that was how much it was estimated to cost had we gone forward. So in that sense, $400 million is just kind of a drop in the bucket if you're talking about $8.1 billion. But there were critics who were worried that NASA was being super conservative with those estimates, that it was actually going to cost way more than that. And the tendency for projects to go over budget was well established. Now, again, I want to stress that this tendency for NASA projects to go over budget, I don't think that's necessarily an inherent flaw in NASA or that people are being dishonest or something. Rather, I think this is something we should expect because NASA is tied to politics. So changes in the political landscape, like changes in how much Congress budgets towards NASA, not to mention who happens to be leading NASA after presidential administrations change, all of that can have a massive effect on the agency itself. And it's beyond the project leader's control. Now, in the design process, engineers found it necessary to deviate from the initial you know, design in order to meet all the parameters of the mission. And this is where they ran into some serious problems. Now, maybe you've heard a phrase similar to this. You can have it done fast, you can have it done right, and you can have it done under budget, but you can only pick two of those three things. Well, NASA was trying very hard to do everything, and there were actually more requirements than just three, and it was proving to just be too big of a challenge. Complicating matters was the tragedy of the space shuttle Challenger disaster. That happened in 1986, and the loss of all hands aboard was a huge blow to both the nation and the space program in particular, and NASA grounded the shuttle program for more than two and a half years while investigating the causes of that explosion. Obviously, that's going to have an impact on plans for a space station. Toward the end of the project, NASA estimated it might take more than 30 missions, not 11, in order to complete the station, with it being suitable for occupation after 21 missions. Meanwhile, astronauts with experience in space, you know, they critiqued the design of the station. They called out flaws that would make it, you know, more difficult for astronauts to do their jobs in space. 
And budget cuts meant that NASA would have to look to eliminate certain modules and reduce the capacity and thus usefulness of the station in an effort to meet new budget constraints. In 1987, NASA submitted a cost assessment for building the dual-keel design, and the new cost was figured to be at least $14.5 billion. Congress flipped out, and several politicians expressed doubt that the station would ever actually go into orbit because of all the various delays and changes in design. The whole possibility of a modular space station with the U.S. taking a lead role was in jeopardy. Now, eventually, NASA and several representatives from the government were able to hash out a compromise. NASA would abandon the dual-keel design, uh, not entirely. Some elements of the project would actually find their way into a new proposal, but the majority of it would be put on indefinite hold until it was effectively just gone. And NASA would instead design, build, and deploy what was being called a Phase 1 space station, something to serve as kind of an interim step toward establishing a permanent space station in orbit. After all, that was the goal, to create a space station that could stay in orbit indefinitely, serving as a scientific platform and a stepping stone toward future space exploration missions to places like Mars. The new design, NASA estimated, would need either 10 or 11 missions to get everything into orbit. It would emit lots of stuff from the previous designs, including half of the power generators, so its capacity would also be limited. The Reagan administration gave the new design the name of Space Station Freedom, so at least this version got as far as getting a name, which is more than I can say about power tower and dual keel. However, like those unnamed stations, Freedom would also never become a real station. Parts of Freedom would evolve to become components for the International Space Station, but that's further down the line. Let's talk a little bit more about what Freedom was supposed to be. So this was still going on in the late 1980s when these conversations were going. Uh, the Soviet Union was still a thing at that point, so Mir was still a thing. Uh, it had been nearly a decade since Skylab had come crashing back down to Earth, and more than a decade since the United States had astronauts aboard a U.S. space station. NASA continued to receive criticism for the proposed station design. Uh, to meet the lower budget requirements that Congress set, NASA had simplified freedom so that it would have just two connecting points for additional modules. Uh, the dual-keel design had had five of those. This prompted some critics to suggest that the station wouldn't actually support enough scientific work to be a good return on investment. There were calls to abandon the modular approach entirely and then send up something more like the monolithic stations of the Salyut and Skylab eras. Meanwhile, the European Space Agency was at loggerheads with NASA because the two agencies couldn't come to an agreement regarding module design and purpose, and the ESA was growing frustrated that NASA was blocking some of their proposals uh, and thus bringing the international project into jeopardy. Then on the home front here in the U.S., there was another adversary. There was the Department of Defense. The DOD wanted to have full military access to the station for the purposes of military research. Now, that would already be a complication if the station were purely an American project, because scientists would be forced to surrender space to researchers conducting experiments for the military. But since Freedom was supposed to have international cooperation, this was even more complicated. After all, Europe wasn't likely to grant full access to any ESA modules to U.S. military researchers. 
And that got Congress involved with members of the DOD and Congress people getting into some pretty heated battles over the whole thing. Station freedom was starting to take on a pretty ugly context, and there's probably something allegorical to be said about that, but I'm going to leave that to the poets out there. Despite all these issues, freedom did get initial approval to move forward before it would ultimately dissolve and morph into contributions toward the International Space Station. More on that after this quick break. So, despite a lot of drama and disagreements, NASA got approval from the National Research Council in 1987 to go forward with the construction of Space Station Freedom. However, that approval did not come with a lot of enthusiasm. But it did give NASA the ability to start securing development contracts with various vendors, thus moving from this sort of theoretical planning stage to something a bit more you know, concrete with companies actually manufacturing hardware. Critics continued to complain about the station plan in general, with some saying that it was putting way too much emphasis on material science experiments. Uh, a big part of the original station plan was to pursue the possibility of bringing commercial manufacturing to space. But then folks figured that that didn't make a whole lot of sense unless you were just building stuff meant to work in space, like to fly off to the moon or Mars or something, because Otherwise, the cost of getting raw materials to space and then bringing finished products back to Earth is just, I mean, it's astronomical to use a pun. The plan was that the U.S. would take the lead on this station. It would have a majority ownership, like vast majority, like 97% ownership of the station. Canada would have like 3% ownership of the station. And then the ESA and Japan would each have 51% ownership of their individual modules that connected to the station. The crew would consist of eight astronauts, six of whom were to be American and the other two being international astronauts. Each crew was expected to serve a 90-day tour of duty. But then NASA later said, you know what? We changed our minds. Let's make it 120 days for a tour of duty instead. Uh, that was because they were trying to figure out a way to reduce the number of space shuttle missions they would need to send in order to, you know, keep up that particular schedule. Uh, and there were a lot of people on Earth calling for NASA to explore alternatives to the space shuttle program, including the use of heavy lift rockets to bring stuff up to a proposed station. This was largely because of that Challenger disaster. There were people saying, we need to have a different alternative to just space shuttles. On the political front, NASA saw its budget slashed a few times, including massive cuts to the space station budget. And as you can imagine, when you're trying to complete a very challenging project, it does not get easier to do when support for your project goes away. NASA had originally hoped to begin launching components by 1993, but at this stage, that had slipped to 1995 uh, with them you know, estimating that astronauts could potentially begin to occupy the space station starting in 1997. Uh, even that decision was met with criticism, namely from NASA's partners, because Japan and Europe were both upset that NASA did not first consult with them before announcing this pushed-back launch date. The international participation meant that all these agencies are dependent upon one another to at least some extent. And so a delay with one obviously affects the others. And I suppose they weren't really mad. They're just very disappointed. 
1990, Space Station Freedom whimpered to a halt. The project had pretty much failed in every metric. An audit showed that the station design was more massive than originally planned. It was 23% heavier, in fact, and that would put more strain on making sure that NASA could keep the thing in orbit and not have it decay and re-enter the atmosphere. It would mean, you know, more mass means, again, that you have to keep on pushing to keep that momentum going uh, or else, you know, it'll slow down gradually and come back crashing to Earth. The design was also extremely complex for freedom. Some critics felt that, in fact, it was overly complicated, and that meant that it was both driving up the cost and also it would make it harder to actually build and operate the ding-dang thing. On top of that, the you know, in order to meet the budget needs, NASA was starting to make some pretty massive cuts on the design, including cuts to the power generation. Now, that prompted scientists to say, you might not even be able to generate enough power to run all the different experiments. And that would be an issue too. Like if you can't actually run the experiments you need to run, then why are we even building the thing? The findings of the, the you know report showed that there would be a 34% shortfall in power supply. And so, you know, you have a third of the power you need is just not there. That's not great. Essentially, the conclusion was that the station was going to be too expensive and not actually do what scientists needed it to do. So the whole thing kind of fizzled out. Now, NASA still wanted to build a space station, and folks in the government still wanted that too. At least some of them did. But the agency was told it would be getting less money that, and it would also require another redesign. They weren't going to be able to go with station freedom. Now, if this episode has nailed any point home, I think it's that this whole process is laborious to the extreme, but the engineers went back to the drawing board, and NASA created a new design in 1991. The new station will use prefabricated truss segments that would not require assembly in space, and that would reduce the number of EVAs, or extravehicular activities, or spacewalks, that would be necessary to bring the station together which had been a criticism of the previous designs. They would have required thousands of hours of spacewalks, and the goal was to aim for more like a few hundred hours of spacewalks per year. Uh, The station would be smaller, and it would have fewer modules and fewer power generators to boot. Crew quarters would get smaller. Crew capacity would go from eight astronauts to four. The life support system was simplified, It also meant that NASA would have to fly more resupply missions to the station to bring up more water and oxygen because the simplified version of life support would not be able to reclaim and recycle oxygen and water as effectively. So that would be an additional uh, burden, right? You would have to keep bringing more supplies up, and that's expensive. Scientists worried that a crew of four would be too small to do anything really useful aboard the station and that any experiments would be so limited as to be a terrible return on investment. So politicians began to question the viability of this project. Now, I feel a lot of sympathy for NASA because here's an agency trying desperately to put together a working plan for a space station, but with all the different pressures and components in place, the task was next to impossible. At one point in 1991, a House Appropriations subcommittee actually voted to terminate all funding for the space station, which at that point had received the derisive nickname Space Station Fred 
because it was a fraction of the size and capability of the proposed space station Freedom. Freedom got shortened to FRED. Now, despite the vote to terminate support, Congress as a whole decided to continue providing funding for the station, particularly after NASA made some deep cuts elsewhere in its various programs. The following year, Congress held a vote to cancel the project, but that vote was defeated, and it kept the station alive for the time being. And this whole time, there were companies working on building that actual hardware that would make up the modules on the space station. So NASA had kept tweaking designs, but doing so while trying to maintain compatibility with older plans so that the pieces that were already in motion would still be usable by the time, you know, they were ready to launch the space station. By 1993, some of the hardware was actually nearing the point where NASA was going to need to do some flight testing. So, like, stuff was coming together. It's just that the overall space station project itself was at risk. Then the USSR fell apart, and the Cold War effectively came to an end. At least, that Cold War came to an end. I would argue we have other Cold Wars going on right now, including one with Russia. Now, there were... There was no longer an adversary in the form of the USSR. That was gone. This also meant that Congress started to look at reducing budgets for things like military budgets, as well as the space budget. And this reinforces the fact that the space program was, in part, fueled by the rivalry that the United States had with the Soviet Union. And without that rivalry, a lot of politicians just didn't see the expense of a space station as being justifiable. The Clinton administration gave NASA a new order to come up with three different proposals for a space station that would honor the international commitments that NASA had made with partners like the European Space Agency. And they had three different budget caps. There was a budget cap of $5 billion, $7 billion, or $9 billion. So in other words, hey, NASA, propose space stations these are the three categories. They can't go over $9 billion, and then we'll decide which one we're going to go with. Considering that even Station Fred was projected to cost nearly $17 billion, this was a huge request. However, you could say that NASA had already done some of this work, right? Some of those contracts that it had made had already started to produce components for a space station. So at least some of it had already been paid for. Now, as it would turn out, the collapse of the USSR would mean that Russia, once considered a great enemy to the United States, could join in this international project. This finally sets the stage for the International Space Station, and that is what we will talk about in the next episode in this series. But for now, let us say goodbye. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, please reach out to me. I greatly appreciate it. The best way to do that is on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 